We're going to be in uh, Genesis, and so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis, we're talking about joy today. This is the Advent season. We're going to stay in Genesis uh, in talking about Advent or the waiting and anticipation of Jesus returning. We're talking about joy today, and I got to tell you, it's not going to feel very joyful. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to feel uh, less than joyful at first. My hope is to bring it around and to communicate that to you. I believe Genesis carries so many of these themes. In fact, throughout the whole scripture, I think we could preach Advent from any scripture that we're, that we're talking out of the anticipation of Jesus. That is what the Bible is about. The whole Bible is about is pointing towards Jesus and God's rescue through Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And so we're, we're talking today about primarily Genesis chapter 6. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll briefly talk about Genesis chapter 5 here for, for just a second. But when you think about the joy of Christmas, when you think about uh, anticipating Christmas and thinking about what, what's coming up, do you experience joy? Do you experience a joy that, that you think about and, and, and you think about the, the coming of Christ the, the first time? The anticipation that Israel had for him, it, waiting for the Savior of the world, waiting for this Jesus, waiting for him. Do you think about that at all? Does our world think about the anticipation of Jesus? Do they, are they reveling in the idea that they're waiting for this incredible joy or, or they have this joy that Jesus is coming? Is that what our world does? Are we thinking about the joy? We sing joy to the world oftentimes. The Lord has come. But can you sing joy to the world with true authenticity, saying that I am joyful for this Savior who has come? Do I have a joy that he has come and he is coming? Because i got to be honest with you, and that is that sometimes I lack this joy. Sometimes I lack this joy uh, internally in my heart about, about my life. And I would imagine that there's many people in this room that lack the joy that God has called us to and has enabled us to have. And there's a pretty specific reason for that. In Genesis chapter 5, we talked about chapter 4 this last week, and we talked about how uh, uh, I, I, really, I, I should go back and do 3.15 again here because this is, this is really a hallmark passage. Let me uh, recap this very briefly. And that is, as God comes to the serpent who has gotten Eve to take part in eating of the fruit that God had told them not to eat. Uh, and she goes ahead, uh, goes ahead and eats. And then she gives some to Adam and they eat. So they sin against God, and then God comes and says, did you eat of this fruit? And they blame each other and all of this, so then God comes with judgment. And the judgment that he gives to the serpent is this. Because you have done this, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the part that I really want you to listen to. I will put enmity, I'll put strife, fighting, battle, war between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, that's a prophecy. And it's a prophecy about this, that I'm going to make things right. 
and I'm going to make things right through the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman is going to crush you, Satan. So Adam and Eve are sitting there saying, man, we believed the serpent. We believed the lie that we would be better off being our own God our own Lord and Savior, that we could, we could make our own rules. We could define what is right and good. We can isolate ourselves uh, from God. We can question Him. We believe that lie, and it got us in trouble. It brought about death. It brought about spiritual death. It brought about them being removed from the garden. And so they're anticipating. They're saying, okay, when am I going to have this offspring? We talked about it last week, that Adam and Eve... They conceive a child, and she, uh, she bore Cain. And then there was this other guy named Abel. Well, we know the story of Cain and Abel, if you were here last week. Cain and Abel have a little disagreement. And the disagreement is that Cain has brought an offering to God, and God doesn't accept it. But God accepts Abel, the younger brother, the less uh, good brother, if you will, the, the brother who really didn't have everything going for him. And so God accepts Abel's offering, but he doesn't accept Cain's offering. And so what happens is Cain gets angry. He kills Abel. And so what Adam and Eve were thinking, we believe, is this, is that this guy Cain, he was supposed to be the offspring that was going to crush the head of the serpent. But it turns out that it's not Cain. And so it says towards the end of the passage, uh, chapter 4, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, called his name Seth, uh, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so she says, great, I've got another offspring. And so what happens here next is that now we re-begin creative history. In chapter 5, look at the beginning of chapter 5. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man uh, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now stop right there for a second. What's he saying? He's saying God restarted things. The author is showing us God hit reset. He hits reset. Here's Seth. And, and, and this is what's going to take place. Now we're going to see this offspring, this serpent crusher, who's going to smash the head of the, of the serpent. So here we go. We restart history. So then it starts going through a genealogy, which most of us go, yeah, 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 you know, what, what the heck is this? And so look at this. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, if you look at the end of each one of these sections, there's Seth. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And then it's going to keep going, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then it gets to Enoch in verse 21. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's weird. Uh, Enoch didn't die. Everyone else died. What happened to Enoch? Well, Enoch just disappeared one day, it looks like. But what it's saying here is it's saying that Enoch walked with God, and then God just took him. He didn't experience that death. So then we go on, go on to Methuselah. What happened to Methuselah? He died. What happened to the next guy? He died. And then it goes to verse 32. 
After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now we're in the middle of a genealogy here, and we're going to talk about Noah for a second. So the story of Noah happens in the middle of a genealogy, and it's actually expanding for us and gives us an understanding of what God is doing in the world. Now, here's some really complicated scripture that I don't know what to do with. So we'll just read it, and with very little commentary. Here we go. <laughs> chapter, six. <coughs> chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man uh, were really hot, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Okay? Two seemingly really random thoughts here. Here's the third for you. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Is that clear? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's not clear to most people. And there are people with theories about exactly what all of those things mean. It, it, did God limit the number of years of, of man at that point? Because as you have seen, we're looking at ancient, ancient history, and the scriptures clearly teach that men were living hundreds and hundreds of years. So now he's saying he's going to remove his spirit and they're only going to live 120 years, but that could also be 120 years until he's going to judge man here in the next section. We're not really sure. The Nephilim, that is a uh, favorite topic of, of many geeks, all right? Many, many Bible nerds love to talk about the Nephilim. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they are. We don't know what the sons of God are. Are, are they human or are they angels? Uh, or what, what are the sons of God? There's a couple of different options. I don't think any of them are helpful. i got to be honest with you. We don't really know. Don't get wrapped up in this because this is not determinant of anything. What we do know is this, is that there was some stuff that was going on and things were progressively uh, getting worse. One of the things that it is saying is that people are getting married and life is kind of happening. And it's continuing to happen, and it's continuing to happen, and life just kind of keeps going in this direction. And what's taking place, we're going to see next, is this. The Lord saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Remember, Enoch walked with God too. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And we'll stop right there. Merry Christmas. You're welcome. No boring sermons about joy around here, right? Um, why would we talk about joy on a day like this? Why would we talk about something that seems so antithetical to joy? The judgment of God. Something that is seriously, completely, totally rejected by our culture. The idea of judgment is, is not a happy idea. It is not an idea that our world desires to even discuss. In fact, our world over and over and over and over says, you must be tolerant. You must not judge anybody. I mean, for you to ever even say that somebody should not do something and to ever even do something like that means that you are, you're a, a, a punk and you should go to hell. You should never, ever judge or we're going to judge you. Yeah. Or I'm going to judge who you are. Our world continually says, like, we hate the idea of judgment, and yet the world judges constantly. We judge that sexual harassment is wrong. We believe that men, especially, that use their power to exploit women and to take advantage of them, threatening their job, threatening their livelihood, or offering them uh, great careers because of the things that they will provide to this man. We believe that that is so evil that they deserve, that, they deserve, that these men deserve absolute castigation and maybe castration, that they deserve to be put out. They must lose their jobs they must be completely and totally removed from our society, removed from our eyes. They cannot be on our TV. They cannot make the movies that we watch. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that's a judgment. We believe that what's happening in Syria with the civilians that are being brutally treated and bombed to smithereens that are being repeatedly over and over and over again brutalized by a, a, a horrible dictator. We believe that that is wrong and that it should stop. We believe that immigrants should not be separated from their children. That this is, that this is an evil thing that takes place. That, that we should not separate them. That we should not keep them from their parents. And we think about that. We think about the evil that's involved in that. Never mind the idea of justice and judgment on the border. We're talking about that specific act here for a moment. Restrain your politicism. We believe many things that are wrong. And then we can look to God and we can say, God, where are you? Where where are you right, right now? If God is so good, then why has he allowed evil? Is he turning a blind eye towards evil? I mean, if there really is a God, then why would he allow these things? Why wouldn't he just take evil out at the knees and just end it? Why would he not do that? 
God seems inept. He's asleep at the switch. I will never follow a God like that because God allows evil, and therefore I don't, I don't believe that there's a God. Otherwise, he wouldn't allow this. And so we write off God, and we say, you haven't made right judgments. And here's the thing. We hate the idea of judgment, but oftentimes our culture eliminates the idea of God by saying he doesn't judge. Otherwise, if he was a good God, then he would judge. Isn't that kind of weird? God, you don't exist because you don't judge enough. But if anybody else were to judge, then that is just totally wrong. And then you look at one of the uh, favorite scriptures of people, judge not lest you be judged. You know, you shouldn't judge me. Don't judge the way that I live. Don't judge the way that I am. But yet we are completely clear on things that should be judged. So should we judge or should we not judge? And people say, you know, I like this idea of Jesus, but I don't like this idea of judgment. And I want to tell you that if you do not receive the judgment of Jesus, you cannot receive the joy of Jesus. If you do not receive the judgment that God has, you cannot experience the salvation that God has through Jesus. Look at the passage here with me. It says this in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God makes a judgment. He makes a judgment that is completely based on what's happening in that world. He looks at what's happening in humanity and he says, there is no man or woman who exists righteously. There is no one. Every intention, that means every, that means all, that means every aspect of that, that man or woman, every intention of the thoughts of his heart. It's not even just the actions that you do, it's the intentions of the thoughts of his heart. It's in your, in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your being, that you are and I are corrupted. That's what that's saying. And that it's not just that it's kind of bad, but that God names it. And he says that it's absolutely evil. It's completely evil. If you look down to verse 11... Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. This corruption, that word corruption also means destroy. This corruption or this destruction leads to the earth being filled with violence. The earth being completely filled with violence. What's the earth filled with today? Is it not violence? Are people not hungry for violence? It's physical violence oftentimes. Violent TV shows, violent actions, violent protests, violent dictators, violent rapists, violent murderers. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's saying this. 
that God sees the heart. He knows what's in the heart of man. He sees the evidence of the heart that it's filled with violence. See, we want to believe something that's a complete lie. That people are mostly good. We, we want to believe the lie that says, I think that people are mostly good. It's just the bad ones. Hey, God, has, God has a different story for us. God has a different answer. And the answer is this, is that we are totally depraved. Depraved me, meaning this, that you and I are affected in every aspect, every sense that we have, every place within our personality is tainted by sin. Now, we may not be as bad as we could be, but we have the potential to be as bad as anyone. We have the potential in us, which shows us this, that we have the ability to murder. We have the ability to kill, steal, destroy, whatever it is. But even more than that, Jesus says in the Gospels, he says that if you even look at a woman lustfully, that you've committed adultery. It's like the act has already happened. It says, he also says that if you look at your brother and you say, you fool, you might as well have murdered him because you just committed murder in your heart. It's not just the people that act on those things, it's the people that think those things. The scriptures also say elsewhere, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Other translations say desperately wicked. Who can understand it? David, King David, the psalmist, says in Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Job 15, 14, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Jesus says in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus includes slandering someone, lying about something. He puts it in the same category as murder. And he says, it's not just a temporary lapse in judgment. It is something that came out of the heart. It is who you and I are. It's not who we can be sometimes. It's not when I'm listening to my better angels. or I've got some demons in my life. No, it's coming out of the heart. That's why when we look at sin, we can't just look at and just say, you know what, I just need to stop depending on alcohol. It's that you have to look at the heart. What is the heart saying or doing or believing that says, I have to have alcohol or I have to have some illicit drug? Why is the heart telling you that you need more than what your spouse provides? Why is the heart telling you that I must overwork? Why is the heart telling you that you must gossip about your friends or someone that you know or what have you. It's not just a temporary lapse in judgment. It is a matter of the heart, and it pervades you and I. We're soaked to the core. There's no part of us that's dry. Every one of us is dealing with the same thing that's happening here. 
There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one. There's no one. There's no one. Joy to the world, the Lord. We won't end the sermon there. Here's the thing. We're all in this place. But let's look at Jonah. Clearly, the author knows what God is thinking. This is God's word. We believe Moses wrote this. God is communicating to Moses what he wants to communicate. We see what God believes or what God is thinking in his heart. He says, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created. He says, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And I don't believe that it's God saying, ah, <laughs> made a mistake. No, I believe God is showing us something here that he has thoughts, that he has feelings, that he is not some capricious God who just, ah, we'll just start again. All right, yeah, that's fine. No, God, God feels something. He's grieved about it. He's grieved to the heart. Are you grieved by evil? Are you grieved about the things that are going on? Because God is grieved about evil. God is immensely grieved by evil. Does it look like God doesn't care? The story of Noah shows us that God really does care. He really is watching over creation. He really is seeing what's happening in your life and the way that you're being mistreated. He really is seeing that. But there's something else that God sees. God is seeing how you're acting and how you're responding and how you're mistreating others. God sees all of this. All of us stand in this totally depraved state. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God makes clear statements, and that is that there is no one, there is nobody, there is no person who does what is right in their heart. No one has a leg to stand on. And that includes Noah. Noah is just as messed up. He's just as jacked up as anyone. But there's one clear difference between Noah and everyone else. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember the question that we're asking as an overall theme as we're reading through Genesis is, who is the offspring going to be that is going to crush the head of the serpent? How will they come into fruition? Will it be because we finally have somebody that is fantastic, that is going to be amazing, and they're going to save us? They're going to be a really good person. They're going to be awesome. Is that what's going to happen? We do that all the time. We say, you know what? we got to elect this person. 
into office. If we can elect that person into office, then they're going to take care of all of our immigration problems. They're going to deal with the Congress in the way that we want them to. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to take care of everybody. They're going to make me happy in the way that they do these things. And we're looking for a savior. And many times people are looking in the, in the scriptures. They're looking for this person that's going to be perfect. And sometimes they'll even preach this in a way that says, you know what? But Noah was a really good guy. And so you ought to be like Noah. Let's be like Noah. But Noah isn't a good guy because Noah's a good guy. Noah's actually a bad guy who has a good God. Noah's a bad guy that has a good God because Noah's just as jacked up as everyone else. And so what does it say? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you look at the word favor in the Hebrew, it doesn't just mean favor, it means grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found the grace of God. Noah experienced God's grace for whatever reason. Why did Noah and no one else outside of his family? We don't know the answer to that. We don't know the answer. How will God's seed continue? How will the offspring who is going to take out the serpent, how will he survive if everyone is evil? It's because God has found grace uh, uh, I'm sorry, because Noah found grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, God looks at Noah and he says, I am going to have grace, my elective grace, if you will. I am choosing to put my grace on you. Did Noah do anything to receive his grace? Did God look at Noah and say, you know what? I mean, he's totally messed up. Every intention of his heart and thoughts and everything is so messed up. But I think there's just a, a, a tinge of something positive. Like, he listens to worship music when he gets up in the morning. Like, that we should, we should think that he's a good guy because of that. No. God chooses to lavish his grace on Noah. So then what happens in Noah's life? Look at the order here, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. What's it going to say about Noah? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Look at the ascending order here. He was righteous, one commentator says, which means living in the right relationship with God his neighbors, and all God's creatures. So he lives rightly between him and God. God's grace enables him to have relationship with God, to walk with God, to live righteously before God, which means that his relationships with his fellow man and woman are right. Noah lives righteously. He's living in right relationship with God. The second thing is, is that he is blameless in his generation. Which means this, walking with integrity of heart. It means that as he walks, he can walk in the integrity of his heart. God's favor has entered into Noah's life. And instead of Noah going the way of culture, instead of Noah going into all of these other things, instead of Noah being there, Noah is here and he's blameless. He is blameless with integrity of heart. And on top of that, 
He walked with God, just like Enoch did before him. This is showing us something. It's showing us this. You and I cannot walk blamelessly, cannot walk righteously, cannot walk with God without God's grace first being imparted to you. If you do not have God's grace, you cannot walk with God. It's an impossibility. If you do not have the grace of God, you cannot walk with God. I think about my own life. I think about all of the places that I have been, all of the sins that I committed, the way that I lived my life, the way that other people that were ahead of me who, who I looked at as father figures and as people that were guiding me. And their lives fell apart. They were destroyed. Not completely destroyed, but in many aspects, it was difficulty and violence and trouble with the law and so on and so forth. Now, I always think about Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. And I think about that for my life. Because I think about the fact that, that there's no reason that I'm standing here telling you about Jesus. There's, guys, it's absurd. It's insanity. Because every intention, every thought, everything in, in Matt Porter's life was maligned. It only brought me to violence. It only br brought me to insurrection. It only brought me to rebellion. That's where Matt Porter was leading Matt Porter. But somehow through some crazy circumstance, God plucked me out of my family, not because my parents were so horrible or what ha have you, but God plucked me out of there to take me to a new situation. He mo literally moved me out of my home. And God gave me something that I will never forget. And that is just a pause in life to think about where do I want to go. And God's grace was in those moments. And it wasn't because I did it. It's because God totally pulled me out of this. I had dropped out of school. I was smoking weed. I was just stupid things. I was roofing, didn't have my license. I was getting paid cash every day. I'd give some money to somebody, so they'd go buy me some beer. We'd drink for a while, and then this is that as like a 15-year-old kid. And then I'd get hungry, and I'd go to 7-Eleven. And I would buy a chili cheese dog. You don't know what total depravity is until you've had a chili cheese dog at 7-Eleven. I mean, it... It is, it is the next closest thing. It's uh, nearly totally depraved. The, this was my existence. This is what I was going for. This is what, this is what life looked like to me. It was, it was engaging in drunkenness, doing whatever I wanted sexually, 
at the age of 15. And one day, my aunt calls and she says, I want Matt to come down here and go back to school. Now, two things I did not want to do. I did not want to be in Texas without my friends. And I did not want to live under my aunt's roof. Because my aunt was a dot every I, cross every T type person. So I decided to get high. All right, that's the natural, natural response to this request. Matt, will you come down, go back to school? I was like, I'm going to get high. So I go get high with my buddy. We walk down into the woods, into an abandoned subdivision that's covered by woods. No one even knows where it is. We walk down there, and I'm sitting on the curb of this abandoned subdivision. And my, my brother, who doesn't even live with me, does, was not there, has never been there before, whatever, walks out of the woods. I'm sitting there getting high on the curb, and my brother says, if you know my brother, he would not be saying these things. I don't know how he did. It was only by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, Matt, I think you should go to Texas. And I'm just sitting there like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> this is crazy stuff, man. <laughs> and for some stupid reason, I, I was like, I probably went because I was high. Maybe that's what it was, all right? I got on a plane. And it wasn't because I went to Texas and learned how to be moral that God had grace on me. I went to Texas and I got sober so that I could understand who God is in my life and that I could begin to desire him because God had shown his grace to me. I was not looking for that. I was under the same judgment as all of us, as the generation along with Noah. But God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive with Christ. And he awakened me to this. He awakened me to something, to a desire for him. And somehow I found the grace of God, I found the favor of God, and I think about it today and I think, God, there's no reason why I deserved that. I did not deserve it. I didn't deserve you coming after me. I didn't do anything to make you love me. I, didn't, I wasn't acting right. I was drunk. I was wrong. And God was so incredibly good to me. And as a result, what takes place is that Noah becomes a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Noah responded to the grace of God by saying, I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you in life. So here's a question for you. You may have come to that moment where you said, I'm a sinner in need of grace. The wrath of God is impending upon me. I'm, I'm experiencing his judgment. I see it. I know it. And you may have received the grace of God in some way. God awakened you to this reality. But, but nothing has happened in your life since the day that you prayed a prayer. Which prayers, by the way, don't save you. God saves you. 
It's not your doing, it's God's doing in your life. But ever since that point, you haven't done anything. It's simply been something that you do. You go along uh, with the motions. Perhaps you don't even do that. You rarely attend church. You rarely engage with God. You don't engage in prayer. The only thing that you do is that you, you just, you're just kind of doing your own thing. And you say, well, I'm, you know, I, I prayed this prayer and I got saved at one point. But that's not what it looks like to be a man or a woman of God who walks with God. See, Noah was righteous. Now, it's true we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we receive him by faith. But that righteousness is a righteousness that we did not have before. It's a righteousness that we, that we can't make in ourselves. But God says that he wants us to walk righteously because he's given us his righteousness. He doesn't say, I'll give you salvation if you be righteous. No, he says, I've given you righteousness in order to save you so that you can walk righteously. And the question is this. Are you a man, are you a woman who walks with God? Do you walk with him? Or are you trifling with all the things of this world? You're doing whatever it is that you want to do. And ultimately what you end up acting like is this wicked generation. That every intention of, of the thoughts of your heart is just going on and is evil continually. It's filled with violence. And if it's not physical violence, it's thoughts of violence. Every sin is a violent act of rebellion against God. I don't care how minuscule you say that it is. God says it, is, it deserves judgment. How dare us imply that we've received the grace of God, the favor of God, and then turn around and say, I'm just going to walk in any way that I want. The relationship with God is forever. You cannot get yourself away from God. You cannot pull yourself out of his hand. You cannot do anything to destroy that relationship. The question is, have you ever begun that relationship? If you can continue to walk in deliberate ways away from God. That's my question. You may have prayed a prayer. You may believe well and good that you are a believer, and you might be that, but you might not be. You might not be. Now, where's the joy? Where is the joy? See, we ask this question all the time. Why doesn't God stop all the violence in the world? Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't he do something? And the answer is, he did, and he will. God has dealt this way before. We see it in the life of Noah. He takes all of creation, and he flushes it, as it were, saving a few. And then what takes place? We'll see in the coming days, but I want to tell you, even though God flushes everyone but the good guy, Noah, there are still problems, and it still continues, and it still continues, and it still continues. And Israel 
is hoping and waiting, and they're hoping and waiting. And why are they hoping and waiting for Jesus? They're hoping and waiting because he is going to bring judgment. He's going to set captives free. He's going to make the blind see. He's going to make the lame walk. He's going to heal. And it is in and through his judgment. It is in and through his sword. It is in and through who he is that he will bring joy. See, here's the thing. If you're not experiencing the joy of Christmas, then it's likely that you do not even see your need for the Savior. If you don't see the joy of Christmas, if you don't see the longing that Israel went through, if you don't look back to the birth of Christ and you say, finally Jesus came and he's going to right all the wrongs and he's going to make every right, Make everything, every wrong right, I should say. If you can't look back at that and say, man, it's a joyful time. And then if you can't look ahead and say, but he's coming again. He's coming again. And I wait with anticipation. Then it shows that you don't know the real Jesus. If you can't receive the judgment of Jesus, then you can't receive the joy of Jesus. See, the joy of Jesus comes through the judgment of Jesus. You can only be joyful insofar as you believe wholeheartedly in God's divine and true judgment that will take place again. See, Jesus says that in the final days, it says this in Luke chapter 17, Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. See, Jesus says, it's happened before. It's going to happen again. I'm coming to judge the living and the dead. And my friends... My question for you is this. Do you have any joy over Christmas? Because if you do not have joy over Christmas, you're not going to have joy over Jesus' second, uh, second coming, his return. How do you get the joy of Christmas? You have to look to Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. It says in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, if you don't believe that you need to be saved from something, if you don't look at the condemnation of God, the judgment of God, and say, it's real, it's coming, it's happened before, it'll happen again. If you don't believe in the judgment of God that's impending upon you, you cannot believe or hope in the saving of that God. It's not about you doing more 
good than bad because your heart is completely tainted. My heart is completely tainted by sin. I have no hope without God. I have no hope without the Savior. I have to have Jesus. And Jesus' primary objective was not to come in the world and say, you know what, you stink, you stink, you stink, you stink. No, Jesus came in and he says, you're already condemned. You already see the condemnation. You already know that that's impending on you. And let me just tell you, there is great joy in even seeing the judgment that you are under. If you're sitting here right now and you're telling yourself, I'm not that bad. I haven't done that many things wrong. I don't really need a savior. There's no joy for you. There's no grace for you. That's not, that's not what God has for you. But if you can say, in reality, you can see the judgment of God impending on you, if you can see what's happening there, if you can understand there's the only way that I can make it out of this generation, the only way that I'll make it through Jesus' second coming and live with him eternally in his kingdom forever, the only way that that happens is if I look to him as the only son of God when he went to the cross and he died on that cross and he took my judgment he took my sin. He took everything that I deserved. He took everything that I committed, and he made it his own. And he put it on the cross. Everything that I have committed, everything that I am committing, everything that I will commit, he put it on the cross with him. He took it on, and guess what he gave you? He gave you his righteousness. Won't you receive it? Won't you take it? Do you have joy in Christmas? You cannot have the joy of Christmas until you see the judgment that Jesus came to remove from you through the cross. Look to him, believe, and walk with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for those that are here this morning that are refusing to believe you, to believe in you. Lord, may they see the refusal as the reality that it is, and that is continued rebellion against you. Those are tough words, Lord, but they are true. And Lord, we need you to soften our hearts. So Lord, I pray that today, that those who are existing in unbelief, that, Lord, that they would pray to you and that they would say to you, Lord, would you help my unbelief? Lord, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your favor to be able to even look to you. And, Lord, would they begin to pray that prayer? God, I want to believe. I want to. If you're, if you're true and if you're real and if you're, if you're really there, would, I want to believe. Lord, may they desire you. And, Lord, I believe that that would be a first fruits of what you're already doing in their life that they would even want this because you can't even want you without you displaying your grace. So, Lord, would you make it effective? Would you make it true? Would you cause them to seek after you? Lord, for those of us that have been walking in the faith for many years, Lord, may we see your judgment and the awful nature of that so that we can see the joy and how you saved us from that judgment. And now during this Christmas season, we get to celebrate this over and over again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.